Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. This week was another exciting one in immigration. The cases discussed in this episode include corruption in Russia and a bunch of asylum, drug trafficking, and of course, categorical approach cases, just to name a few topics. But before we get to the show, I feel like I must explain myself a little bit. While editing last week's episode, it became apparent to me that I'm sometimes a bit hard on the Board of Immigration Appeals. Now don't get me wrong, sometimes it's warranted, and to the extent I feel entitled to criticize an appellate body in the Department of Justice, it's because I'm sitting behind a podcast microphone. But it is worth noting, at least for the non-immigration attorney listeners, that a disproportionate amount of poorly written or close-call BIA decisions make their way up to the Circuit Courts of Appeals, both because the private bar doesn't like to take cases that aren't so strong, and most importantly, because DHS cannot appeal a BIA decision when DHS loses. Only the non-citizen is allowed to appeal to the circuits, so the circuits are always and only reviewing cases where the non-citizen has lost. So the BIA decisions that ultimately are reviewed are a bit skewed. And of course, for every published decision reviewed on the show, there are probably three unpublished decisions that are not discussed because they don't have the force of law. And in many of those cases, the BIA is affirmed. And with that qualification, on to some criticism of the BIA. First up is matter of PBB, published by the Board of Immigration Appeals, on July 23rd, 2020. This case is about the divisibility of an Arizona-controlled substance offense. It also involved asylum claims, but they weren't really discussed in the BIA's decision. The non-citizen in this case was a lawful permanent resident, or LPR, who was convicted under Section 13-3407 of the Arizona Revised Statutes, which criminalizes possession of a dangerous drug. The IJ found that this conviction made the non-citizen removable, for having been convicted of an aggravated felony, drug trafficking offense, as defined at 101A43B, and a controlled substance violation, as defined under Section 237A2A of the Immigration and Nationality Act. Now, Arizona's definition of a dangerous drug includes more drugs than the federal definition of a controlled substance. As longtime listeners of the podcast know, under the categorical approach, this makes the state conviction broader than the federal removable offense. This means that unless the BIA is allowed to ascertain the specific dangerous drug possessed in this case, and unless that dangerous drug is on the federal controlled substance list, Mr. PBB gets to keep his green card. 
and the BIA can only attempt to ascertain the dangerous drug at issue if Arizona Statute 133407 is divisible as to the specific dangerous drug a criminal possessed. Or in other words, if the specific drug possessed is an element of the offense. Here, the BIA held that the Arizona statute is divisible because, under the plain language of the statute, conviction for possession of different drugs entails different criminal penalties. This appears to be a more and more common method for courts to find statutes divisible. Also, the BIA held that because Arizona courts can convict a defendant multiple times under the statute for possession of multiple drugs, the drugs at issue must be elements. Applying the modified categorical approach, the BIA was able to ascertain that Mr. PBB indeed possessed a dangerous drug that's listed in both the Arizona statute and the Federal Controlled Substance List. And that's basically the case. The BIA is chipping away at the categorical approach. But the categorical approach really is the legal gift that keeps on giving, and many, many more courts will have their say on issues like this in the coming months and even years. Here are some observations. First, I can't help but shake my head a little bit at the fact that the BIA decided to make a precedential decision on an incredibly complicated issue involving the categorical approach out of a case in which the non-citizen didn't even have an attorney. Mr. PBB did not have an attorney on appeal, and therefore he could not submit an intelligent legal brief. I would think that when the BIA is going to make new law, it would want briefs from both sides first. And the issues really were complicated in this case. Longtime listeners of the podcast may have recognized that in this case, the BIA relied on the statutory text to find the statute divisible, even though it has disregarded the statutory text in other recent cases where the text made the statute overbroad, i.e., good for non-citizens. If that wasn't enough, at footnote 6, the BIA seems to recognize that there are at least two Arizona appellate decisions that in fact hold that the specific drug possessed is not an element of the offense, i.e., there is a realistic probability that Arizona does not treat the specific controlled substance at issue as an element, meaning that the statute is not divisible, contrary to what the BIA just held. And yet, the BIA found a way to get around those cases, unencumbered, it would appear, by any legal argument from the non-citizen, because he didn't have an attorney. One could be excused for thinking that the current BIA is playing fast and loose to get around the categorical approach. But there is some hope. As the BIA recognizes at footnote 5, the Ninth Circuit certified a similar issue to the Arizona Supreme Court in Romero Milan v. Barr, one of the earliest cases discussed on the podcast. And if the Arizona Supreme Court comes back and says that the specific drug at issue is not an element of the offense, this BIA decision becomes worthless because all courts, including the BIA and the Ninth Circuit, must defer to a state Supreme Court's determination of the elements of that state's criminal offenses. Looks like the BIA is trying to get out in front of the Arizona Supreme Court with this case, and thinks it can walk all over the Grand Canyon state. So I guess my question is, are you going to take this Arizona Supreme Court? 
And finally, as a playful aside, if any listeners are wondering why it is that the BIA sometimes has acronyms for its titles, like PBB, and sometimes uses actual names, it's because as a general rule, the BIA uses acronyms when there is an asylum claim involved. I guess the thinking is that publicizing the name of an asylum claimant might put his or her life at risk if they're ultimately removed to that country. Makes sense, except, and listeners may also have noticed, the appellate circuits make the names public, so it's often all for naught. Such is immigration. And that is matter of PBB. The next case up is Dale v. Barr, published by the Second Circuit on July 23, 2020. This is a 41-page derivative citizenship decision out of the Second Circuit, rejecting a non-citizen's constitutional claims and ordering him removed. So as with all derivative citizenship cases, the facts and the years in this case are important, because derivative citizenship law has changed a lot over the years, and the law that decides whether a non-citizen becomes a citizen when his parent naturalizes is generally based on the year that the naturalization takes place. Mr. Dale was born to unwed parents in Jamaica in 1979. In 1981, at the age of two, he came to the U.S. with his mother as a lawful permanent resident. He never lived with his father, who became a U.S. citizen in 1988 through his military service. In 1989, the father obtained an order from the state of New York, affirming that he was Mr. Dale's father. When Mr. Dale became an adult, he was convicted for drug, larceny, and assault offenses. And although he had lived in the U.S. for 36 years since the age of two, DHS sought to remove him to Jamaica in 2017. Now, if all of this had happened today, Mr. Dale would be a U.S. citizen. But in 1988, as relevant to this case... The law allowed for naturalization of children born out of wedlock upon the naturalization of the mother, and only if the paternity of the child was not established by legitimation. Now in this case, Mr. Dale's paternity was established in 1989 when his father got the order from the state of New York. So, Mr. Dale's clever attorney argued, the inverse must be true. Just as the naturalization of the mother will make a child a U.S. citizen, where paternity of the father is not established, so too, naturalization of the father should make a child a U.S. citizen where paternity of the father is established. The IJ didn't buy it and ordered Mr. Dale removed because, among other reasons, his second-degree assault conviction under New York Law Section 120.052 is an aggravated felony crime of violence as defined at INA 101A43F and 8 U.S.C. Section 16A. The BIA affirmed. The Second Circuit did too. It held it was bound by its 2013 decision Pierre v. Holder, and even earlier cases, which held that the plain text of the former derivative citizenship statute simply does not provide any path for children born out of wedlock to derive citizenship solely through the naturalization of the father. The court rejected Mr. Dale's argument that treating unwed fathers differently from unwed mothers violates the Constitution's equal protection guarantee, and held that the Supreme Court's 2017 decision in Sessions v. Morales-Santana, in which the court discussed the untenable sexist stereotypes underlying a similar derivative citizenship law, 
did not invalidate Pierre or the Second Circuit's other citizenship decisions. As to whether New York Law Section 120.052 is a crime of violence, the court found itself barred by its 2019 decision, Singh v. Barr, which addressed the same issue and found that yes, it is an aggravated felony. So Mr. Dale is not a citizen, and he is removable. A fairly wonky decision that really, at base, is about when an appellate panel can overturn another panel based on an intervening Supreme Court case. I encourage you to read this decision if you have that fairly unique circumstance, particularly in the Second Circuit. Just one amusing observation, to me at least. Judge Rakoff, the third judge on this panel, is a district court judge sitting on the Second Circuit in this case by designation, as often occurs because the appellate courts don't have enough judges. Judge Rakoff concurred in this case, but believes that the Second Circuit should not only deem its prior derivative citizenship decisions vacated by Sessions v. Morales-Santana, but that this panel should completely invalidate the old derivative citizenship statute for both mothers and fathers, so we'd make it so no one can naturalize under the old law. Got to appreciate District Judge Ratkoff making the most of his time on the Second Circuit. And that is Dale V. Barr. Next, we got a short case published by the Eighth Circuit on July 23rd, Shire V. Barr. This case is about change country condition motions to reopen, and it's another case that arose from Professor Rebecca Sharpless's litigation in the Southern District of Florida. If you recall from past episodes of the podcast, a bunch of predominantly Somali individuals were deported from the U.S. a couple years ago on an ill-fated flight that after two days and a 24-hour layover in Africa had to return to the U.S. Mr. Shire is one of the individuals from Somalia who was on the flight. He entered the U.S. as a refugee in 2001 and became an LPR in 2004, but in 2006, he pled guilty to drug offenses and was ordered removed in 2008. In 2018, he filed a motion to reopen to apply for asylum, claiming a fear of al-Shabaab and ISIS in Somalia. But the IJ held, essentially, that conditions were bad in Somalia due to al-Shabaab when he was ordered removed in 2008, too. And so, Mr. Shire couldn't show a material change in conditions sufficient to allow him to reopen proceedings to apply for asylum. The BIA affirmed. And so did the Eighth Circuit, finding that Mr. Shire did not establish that the IJ's fact-finding lacked support in the record. The Eighth Circuit also held that the rise of ISIS in Somalia did not change the analysis. Mr. Shire has already been removed to Somalia, and he will not be returned. A short case that I can't really quite explain why the Eighth Circuit decided to publish. Not much here, so we'll just move right along. And that is Shire v. Barr. Next is a case out of the Ninth Circuit, Gonzalo Dominguez v. Barr, published on July 21st, 2020. Mr. Gonzalo Dominguez is 63 years old and has been a lawful permanent resident since 1969. 
right off the bat, this case shows how important it is to naturalize to U.S. citizenship as soon as possible, and now more than ever. He was convicted under Oregon Revised Statute 475.9921A for manufacturing marijuana in 2002. The issue in this case is whether, under the categorical approach, the conviction is an aggravated felony drug trafficking offense, and whether it qualifies as a particularly serious crime that made Mr. Gonzalo Dominguez ineligible for asylum and for withholding of removal. The Ninth Circuit said yes to both. Let's take those issues one at a time. First, the aggravated felony issue. The Oregon statute makes it illegal to manufacture or deliver a controlled substance. In the 2017 case Sandoval v. Sessions out of the Ninth Circuit, the court held that this very statute did not categorically match the definition of a drug trafficking aggravated felony because the Oregon crime allows for conviction for mere solicitation of a controlled substance as a subset of delivery whereas the drug trafficking aggravated felony definition does not equate solicitation with delivery. So the state offense is broader than the federal offense. That's what Sandoval v. Sessions says. This panel doesn't seem to like Sandoval, and got around it by holding that the Oregon statute is divisible as to manufacturing versus delivery. That is, according to the Ninth Circuit, Oregon has two different penalties, somewhat, for manufacturing versus delivery of a controlled substance. And for this reason, the Ninth Circuit was permitted to engage the modified categorical approach, wherein it reviewed the conviction documents and determined that, in fact, Mr. Gonzalo Dominguez manufactured marijuana, which does categorically match the trafficking definition. Put another way, so even though the delivery prong of the Oregon statute is not a drug trafficking aggravated felony under Sandoval, it doesn't matter, because the statute is divisible, and the record shows that Mr. Gonzalo Dominguez manufactured, rather than delivered, a controlled substance. This reasoning is similar to that utilized by the BIA in matter of PBB, discussed earlier in the podcast. The Ninth Circuit also held that Mr. Gonzalo Dominguez was convicted of a particularly serious crime that barred him from asylum and withholding of removal. Now, an aggravated felony drug trafficking offense, like any aggravated felony, will always constitute a particularly serious crime for asylum purposes. But for withholding, the standard is higher. Here, the Ninth Circuit held that Mr. Gonzalo Dominguez's crime met that high standard, particularly because Mr. Gonzalo Dominguez was growing 50 plants of marijuana in his house. Overall, this decision is very bad for crimmigration and non-citizens. I think it's possible that the Ninth Circuit goes and bonk on it, as the analysis doesn't seem to jibe with prior Ninth Circuit decisions and severely undermines the Sandoval decision from 2017. A lot to unpack from this case, so here are just two primary observations. Of note, to buttress its holding that the statute is divisible, the Ninth Circuit took a peek at the indictment. Now this peek at the conviction records is supposed to be a last resort for courts to use only when the statute, case law, jury instructions, and all the other tools don't provide a clear answer. 
and it's supposed to be limited solely to determining the statutory elements of an offense. But it seems that some panels and the BIA are resorting to this peak more and more, and are expanding its purpose, at least in practice. Peaking at the indictment in this case, the Ninth Circuit said that the fact that Mr. Gonzalo Dominguez was charged only with manufacturing further showed that manufacturing is an element, and that the statute is divisible as between manufacturing and delivery. But to me, that's circular reasoning. It could be just as likely that it doesn't matter what the government charges in the indictment, so long as it charges manufacturing or delivery because both are means of committing the offense. The whole ability to peek at the conviction records to determine divisibility has never really made sense to me, and comes largely from Judge Kaczynski's decision dissenting from denial of rehearing in banc of a Ninth Circuit case in 2015. In other words, it has absolutely no force of law, and he's not even on the Ninth Circuit anymore, having been forced to resign his judgeship. Why Kaczynski's dissent and his peaking is cited so much would seem very strange to me. But the Supreme Court did adopt a version of it, at least in part, in its Mathis decision. So here we are. But here's one somewhat decent takeaway from this case. The Ninth Circuit implied that the elements of this crime, and many drug trafficking crimes, would not alone make a crime particularly serious for withholding of removal purposes. So, potentially, a drug trafficking crime with less egregious facts and not involving 50 marijuana plants would not necessarily be particularly serious for withholding purposes, even under this decision. So that's something. And that is Gonzalo Dominguez v. Barr. Moving on, we have Sanabria Morales v. Barr, published by the First Circuit on July 24, 2020. This case is solely about deferral of removal under the Convention Against Torture. So, under the Convention Against Torture, the U.S. cannot return anyone, even the worst criminals, to their country if they will more likely than not be tortured upon their return. I know an immigration judge who is fond of saying that even Osama bin Laden would have had a cat claim because he would have likely been tortured in Saudi Arabia. Mr. Sanabria Morales is from Venezuela and was convicted of heroin trafficking. Based on his conviction, he was only eligible for cat deferral. He claimed he'd be tortured by the Maduro regime and drug traffickers in Venezuela because of his prior membership in a Venezuelan opposition political party called COPE and his prior drug trafficking. And his story of drug trafficking is pretty horrific. He testified that he was forced into trafficking heroin by individuals in Venezuela who threatened to kill his wife and his child if he didn't do it. He flew to Boston with the help of the Venezuelan National Guard, having ingested condoms filled with heroin. When he got to his hotel room in Boston, he passed out and was taken to a hospital, where he vomited it all up. He was in a coma for four days, and when he woke up, he received a call from the leaders in Venezuela, telling him to confess and to waive his rights to trial. He was convicted, but even the federal judge suspected that he was pleading under duress, and sentenced him to a lesser offense with a sentence of three to six years imprisonment. 
In immigration court and before the BIA, he represented himself and filed a lot of evidence to show that he feared he'd be killed by the drug traffickers in Venezuela. After the IJ and the BIA denied his claims, he appealed to the First Circuit by himself. Only then did he receive a pro bono lawyer. And he did not succeed before the First Circuit, largely because the fairly persuasive evidence and argument that his attorney presented for the first time to the First Circuit could not be considered because it was never submitted to the IJ. Such are the harsh rules of litigation. So Mr. Sanabria Morales must return to Venezuela. Just one observation from Judge Thompson in dissent. Judge Thompson would hold that Mr. Sanabria Morales did not waive the argument that his conviction was not a particularly serious crime, and would hold that the crime is not particularly serious, thereby making Mr. Sanabria Morales potentially eligible for asylum and withholding of removal, rather than simply cat deferral. Primarily, Judge Thompson based his reasoning on the fact that although the Attorney General held, nearly two decades ago, in matter of YL, that drug trafficking crimes are presumptively particularly serious, Matter of YL only creates just that, a presumption. Here, according to Judge Thompson, the IJ and the BIA did not conduct any legal analysis or consider the specific facts of this case to see if the presumption was rebutted. A very interesting argument to remember when confronted with Matter of YL and drug trafficking crimes. And that is Santa Bria Morales v. Barr. Moving on, we've got Blanco v. Attorney General of the U.S., published by the Third Circuit on July 24, 2020. This case is about persecution in Honduras and corroboration. Mr. Blanco is a citizen of Honduras. He's a member of Honduras' Liberty and Refoundation, known as Libre Party, an anti-corruption political party that opposes the current Honduran president. After participating in six political marches, he was abducted by the Honduran police, had a mask put over his head, was taken to an abandoned house, and was beaten, on and off, for 12 hours. He was let go, but received death threats over the next several months. He heard about fellow Libre members being murdered after receiving similar threats, so he fled to the United States. Sounds like an asylum case to me. And it is. Now, the IJ and the BIA denied the claim, primarily finding that Mr. Blanco's experience wasn't severe enough to rise to the level of past persecution, and that there wasn't at least a 10% chance that if he was returned, he'd be persecuted by the government in the future, as is required to obtain asylum. But the Third Circuit reversed. The Third Circuit held that the BIA and the IJ erred for three reasons. First, the court held that the agency erred in basing its past persecution finding on the fact that Mr. Blanco's injuries weren't overly severe, because, quote, we have never defined serious injury to mean serious physical injury, end quote. Rather, lots of injuries will suffice, such as death threats combined with other traumatic experiences that aren't actually physical. Second, the Third Circuit reiterated that threats need not be, quote, imminent, as IJs often hold, but rather must simply be, quote, concrete and menacing, end quote. 
meaning essentially that the threat is credible when considered in totality. Therefore, the fact that Mr. Blanco remained in Honduras for a year does not destroy his claim, because he could have been harmed during that year. For example, other Libre members were killed, and the threats he received appeared legitimate. And third, the IJ and the BIA failed to consider all harms cumulatively when undertaking a persecution analysis. Even if the harms don't individually rise to the level of persecution, the BIA's failure to consider the harms in the larger context Mr. Blanco lived was error. The Third Circuit then turned to Mr. Blanco's Convention Against Torture claim, and held that the IJ erred by requiring further corroborating evidence without applying the Third Circuit's three-part test. Namely, the IJ failed to first identify the facts for which it was reasonable to expect corroboration, second, ask for corroboration, and third, then consider Mr. Blanco's reasons for not providing corroborating evidence. So for all of these reasons, the case was sent back to the agency for a proper analysis. Great case for asylum seekers, and it highlights an important argument. Immigration attorneys have the benefit, as crazy as it may sound, of time. We know our cases better than anyone, and we can do the research into country conditions. Boiled down, this case stands for the proposition that the persecution analysis must consider all factors and circumstances in a country, together, in totality. I'll take that standard any day. As to the procedure required by the Third Circuit by an IJ before requiring corroboration, this procedure differs somewhat amongst the circuits and is an evolving issue, so know your circuit. But I love the court's recognition at footnote 3 that, quote, There is also a question regarding the reasonableness of the demand for corroboration, as it is obvious that one who escapes persecution in his or her own land will rarely be in a position to bring documentary evidence or other kinds of corroboration to support a subsequent claim for asylum. Common sense establishes that it is escape and flight, not litigation and corroboration, that is foremost in the mind of an alien who comes to these shores fleeing detention, torture, and persecution. End quote. Hard to argue with that. And that is Blanco v. Attorney General, U.S. Staying with the Third Circuit real quick, we've got Sanchez et al. v. DHS et al., published on July 22, 2020. This isn't a petition for review case, but rather is an immigration case that comes from district court. And I told all of you that for the sake of my own sanity, I'm going to try to limit myself to only petition for review cases that arise in immigration court. But the issue in this case is important and hasn't been discussed on the podcast. So here it is. In this case, the Third Circuit held that temporary protected status, or TPS, is not considered an admission under immigration law. In so holding, the Third Circuit disagrees with the Sixth and the Ninth Circuits, who have held that TPS is an admission. But the decision, quote, closely aligns, end quote, with an Eleventh Circuit case. So, the circuit split gong is warranted. 
Without getting into all of the statutory analysis, I just want to take a minute to discuss why this holding is important. There are over 300,000 individuals in the U.S. with TPS. That status can be taken away at any moment, as the Trump administration tried to do for nearly all TPS holders early on in its administration. Right now, at least two injunctions are holding the termination of TPS at bay for over 200,000 TPS holders. My firm, along with other pro bono counsel, are attorneys on the Saget case for Haitian TPS holders currently pending on appeal in the Second Circuit. Many TPS holders originally came to the U.S. without authorization, and because of that, due to a change in law that went into effect in 2001, they cannot become lawful permanent residents through adjustment of status, even if they marry a U.S. citizen. This is because in order to adjust status after 2001, the non-citizen must have been admitted, which generally means entered the U.S. legally. There are a bunch of exceptions and clever arguments around everything I just said, but that's the general rule. For such individuals, again, even if they're married to a U.S. citizen, their only option is to leave the U.S. and apply to return with an immigrant visa. But the second they leave the U.S., the vast majority will be barred from returning for 10 years. Because before they obtained TPS, many of them were unlawfully present in the U.S. for one year. This 10-year bar is another harsh immigration consequence passed by Congress in 1996. In the 6th and the 9th Circuit, because TPS is considered an admission, TPS holders living in those jurisdictions can adjust to LPR status through their U.S. citizen spouse or other qualifying relative, even if they initially entered the U.S. unlawfully, because the TPS grant qualifies as their admission. But after this decision, TPS holders in the Third Circuit who entered unlawfully cannot do so. Perhaps the Supreme Court will weigh in on the issue and agree with the Sixth and the Ninth Circuit on a national scale. Hundreds of thousands of families hang in the balance. And that is Sanchez et al. v. DHS et al. Next is a case out of the Fifth Circuit, Santos Alvarado v. Barr, published on July 21, 2020. This case is about asylum credibility and due process. Mr. Santos Alvarado is a gay man from El Salvador. He claimed to have been beaten by his father for being gay and sexually assaulted numerous times. He applied for asylum in the United States, and during his immigration court hearing was confronted about some inconsistencies and omissions in his story of harm. Although it was never really in dispute that Mr. Santos Alvarado is gay and that he suffered PTSD, the IJ found, based on inconsistencies, that he was not credible regarding the past persecution that he alleged occurred to him in El Salvador. And for this reason, the IJ and then the BIA denied his asylum application. Mr. Santos Alvarado first challenged the adverse credibility finding before the Fifth Circuit. Now generally to obtain asylum, withholding of removal, or cat protection, a non-citizen must be deemed credible. Because, and again generally, if they're not credible, the IJ can disregard the non-citizen's story and fears. Here, while the Fifth Circuit agreed that Mr. Santos Alvarado didn't necessarily testify inconsistently, the evidence didn't compel reversal of the IJ and the BIA, 
which is what's required at the circuit level. The court also denied Mr. Santos Alvarado's due process arguments for failure to establish that he suffered prejudice as a result. A fairly fact-specific adverse credibility decision. Here are two observations. First, some good news for Fifth Circuit practitioners. Footnote 8 provides a petitioner-friendly summary of Fifth Circuit case law regarding issue exhaustion on petition for review. Stating that to bring an argument before the Fifth Circuit that wasn't directly brought before the BIA, a non-citizen need only have, quote, put the BIA on notice of the claim, end quote. Having recently briefed a Fifth Circuit petition for review, case law can be pretty harsh on this issue, and footnote 8 is a pleasant surprise. And second, although the Fifth Circuit glosses over the issue, the due process claim in this case is not without merit. Mr. Santos Alvarado was represented by a pro bono attorney, an attorney doing this case for free, and that attorney filed two motions before the IJ 30 days before the individual hearing. One motion was to have a necessary witness appear via telephone, and another motion was to continue the case to another date because the expert witness had a scheduling conflict. The IJ denied both motions on the day of the hearing itself without any notice to the pro bono attorney. Immigration court can be harsh. And that is Santos Alvarado v. Barr. Next up is Skripkov v. Barr, published by the Sixth Circuit on July 20th, 2020. This case is about asylum and anti-corruption in Russia. Mr. Skripkov was the head of procurement for government events in a region of Russia. The governor and deputy governor began pressuring him to accept corrupt, inflated bids, and threatened him into resigning. He kept receiving threats even after resigning. He moved towns, but later he heard about an outrageous bid accepted by his replacement, so he informed the Anti-Corruption Foundation, a watchdog in Russia led by the Russian political activist Alexei Navalny. Mr. Skripkov's house was then vandalized and his tires slashed. But that didn't stop Mr. Skripkov, and he became more active with Alexei Navalny's group, and was detained by Russian police at protests. He was threatened with prosecution under Russian Article 212, a charge for unlawful protesting that carries a five-year imprisonment sentence. He was also beaten twice at his home by individuals that he suspected were police. And then finally, while on a visit to the United States for tourism, some sketchy individuals who said they were from child services came looking for his adopted son in Russia. Scared that the Russian government was going to try to take away his son, he and his family applied for asylum. An IJ and then the BIA held that the harm he suffered didn't rise to the level of persecution, and that in any event, it wasn't on account of a protected ground, like a political opinion. But rather, it was because he interfered in business activities. The Sixth Circuit held otherwise, and started off with an excellent quote, quote, Activism against government corruption has been held to constitute a political opinion, end quote. 
In this case, even if the persecutors were, in large part, upset that they lost money by failing to get corrupt government contracts. The IJ failed, quote, to account for the obvious connection between the officer's corruption scheme and Skripkov's anti-corruption activities, end quote. So, too, the BIA's refusal to consider the connection between the criminal prosecution under Russian Article 212 and Mr. Skripkov's anti-corruption activities made no sense to the Sixth Circuit. Indeed, and as I will be quoting in a BIA appeal that I have right now, an asylum applicant, quote, may establish that prosecution reaches the level of persecution if the individual can demonstrate that the prosecution or criminal investigation was actually pretext for persecution on account of one of the INA's enumerated grounds, end quote. And with that, the Sixth Circuit sent it back to the BIA for further correct analysis. Great stuff. Here's some more on how prosecution can constitute persecution. First, this case is an excellent guide on just when prosecution will equate to persecution, particularly, but not necessarily, when the prosecution is for conduct that isn't criminalized in the U.S. For example, quote, to determine if a threatened prosecution was pretextual, we look to both the context and the substance of the law that the home country is attempting to enforce, end quote. In this case, the Sixth Circuit believed important the fact that, quote, considerations of both context and substance suggest that the officers were not simply enforcing a generally applicable law against Skripkov in a disinterested manner, end quote. In other words, selective prosecution strongly supports a persecution finding. Here's another great quote, quote, If the corrupt officers saw Skripkov's political activities as objectionable, then they cannot be said to have acted without a significant concern about Skripkov's political beliefs, end quote. So, in other words, prosecution where a non-citizen has pissed off corrupt officials is strong evidence of persecution on account of a protected ground, rather than simple prosecution. And similarly, where a non-citizen's, quote, anti-corruption activities manifest themselves through acts of public protest, the government officials' pecuniary interest and their desire to quell the petitioner's political activities typically becomes inseparable. So, to anti-corruption activists throughout the world, keep protesting. The Sixth Circuit sees you. And that is Skripkov v. Barr. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend, and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, 
email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.